Chapter Nine of the De Bercy Affair by Gordon Holmes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine: The Letter. Two days later, not Britain alone, but no small part of the two hemispheres, was stirred to the depths by the adjourned inquest of the Feldisham Mansions crime. Nevertheless, though there were sensations in plenty, the public felt vaguely a sense of incompleteness in the process and of dissatisfaction with the result. The police seemed to be both unready and unconvinced. No one was quite sincere in anything that was said. The authorities were swayed by some afterthought. In popular phrase they appeared to have something up their sleeve. Fourneau this time figured for the police. But Winter, too, was there unobtrusively, and, behind, hidden away as a mere spectator, was Clark smiling the smile that knows more than all the world, his hard mouth set in fixed lines like carved wood. As against Osborne the inquiry went hard. More and more the hearts of the witnesses and jury grew hot against him, and by a kind of electric sympathy the blood of the crowd which gathered outside the court caught the fever and became inflamed with its own rage, lashing itself to a fury with coarse jibes and bitter revilings. For no, bringing forth and marshalling evidence on evidence against Osborne, let his eye light often on winter. Then he would look away hastily, as though he feared his face might betray his thoughts. In that small head of his were working more, by far more, secret things, dark intents, unspoken, mazy purposes, than in all the heads put together in the busy court. He was pale, too, but his pallor was nothing compared with the marble forehead of winter whose eyes were nailed to the ground, and whose forehead was knit in a frown grim and hard as rock. It was rarely that he so much as glanced up from the reverie of pitch-black doubts, weltering through his brain like some maelstrom drowned in midnight. Once he glanced keenly upon William Campbell, the taxi-driver, who kept twirling his motor-cap round and round on his finger, until an irritated coroner protested. Once again did he glance at Mrs. Bates, housekeeper, and at the fountain of tears that flowed from her eyes. Campbell was asked to pick out the man whom he had driven from Berkeley Street to Feldisham Mansions, if he saw him in court. He pointed straight at Osborne. "'You will swear that that is the man?' he was asked. "'No, not swear,' he said, and looked round defiantly, as if he knew that most of those present were almost disappointed with his non-committal answer. "'Just think, look at him well,' said the Treasury representative, as Osborne stood up to confront the driver with his pale face. "'That gentleman is like him, very like him, that's all I'll swear to. His manner of dress, his stand, his height, yes, and his face, his moustache, the chin, the few hairs there between the eyebrows. Remarkably like, sir, for I recollect the man well enough. It may have been his double, but I'm not here to swear positively it was Mr. Osborne, because I'm not sure. We will take it, then, that, assuming there were two men, the one was so much like the other that you swear it was either Mr. Osborne or his double? the coroner asked. Well, I'll go so far as that, sir, agreed Campbell, and at this admission Fourneau glanced at a veiled figure that sat among the witnesses at the back of the court. He knew that Rosalind Marsh was present, and his expression softened a little. Then he looked at another veiled woman, Hilda Prout, 
and saw that her eyes were fastened not on the witness, but ever on Rosalind Marsh, as though there was no object, no interest, in the room but that one black-clothed figure of Rosalind. Campbell's memory of the drive was ransacked, and turned inside out, and thrashed and tormented by one and another to weariness, and then it was the turn of Hester Bates, all tears, to tell how she had seen someone like unto Osborne on the stairs at five to eight, whose feet seemed to reel like a drunken man's, and who afterwards impressed her, when she thought of it, as a shape rather of limbo and spirit-land than of Mayfair and everyday life. Then the flint axe-head, or Celt, was presented to the court, and Hilda Prout was called to give evidence against her employer. She told how she had missed an axe-head from the museum, and also a Saracen dagger, but whether this was the very axe-head that was missing she could not say. It was very like it, that was all, and even Osborne showed his amazement at her collectedness, her calm indifference to many eyes. "'May I not be allowed to examine it?' he asked his solicitor. "'Why not?' said the coroner, and there was a tense moment when the Celt was handed him. He bent over it two seconds, and then said quietly, this is certainly one of my collection of flints. His solicitor, taken quite aback, muttered an angry protest, and a queer murmur made itself felt. Osborne heard both the lawyer's words and the subdued, ah, of the others, echoing in his aching heart. By this time he was as inwardly sensitive to the opinion of the mob as a wretch in the hands of inquisitors to the whim and humours of his torturers. That evidence will be taken on oath in due course, said the coroner, dryly official, and the examination of Miss Prout went on after the incident. And now, as to the dagger, resumed the Treasury solicitor, tell us of that. She described it, its shape, the blunt edges of the long and pointed blade, the handle, the label on it with the date. It was Saracen, and it too, like the Celt, had once been used, in all probability, in the hands of wild men in shedding blood. And you are sure of the date when you first missed it from its place in the museum? It was on the third day after the murder, and Hilda Prout's glance travelled for an instant to the veiled, bent head of Rosalind, and it seemed to droop lower after every answer that she gave. And you are unable to conceive how both the dagger and the Celt could have vanished from their places about that time? "'Yes, I conceive that they were stolen,' she said, "'unless Mr. Osborne made them a present to some friend, for I have known him to do that.' "'Stolen, you say,' the Treasury man remarked. "'But you have no grounds for such a belief. You suggest no motive for a thief to steal these two objects, and no other from the museum. You know of no one who entered the room during those days?' "'No, I know of no one, except Inspector Fourneau.' who seems to have entered it about six o'clock on the evening of the murder. The coroner looked up sharply from his notes. This was news to the court. "'Oh,' said the examiner, "'let us hear how that came about.' She explained that Fourneau had called to see Mr. Osborne, and, while awaiting his coming in the library, had apparently strolled into the museum. Jenkins, Mr. Osborne's valet, was her informant. It was not evidence, but the statement was out before the court well knew where it was leading. Winter's lip quivered with suppressed agitation, and over Clark's face came a strange expression of amazement, 
a stare of utter wonderment widening his eyes, as when one has been violently struck, and knows not by what or by whom. When Hilda Prout stepped down, the coroner invited the officer in charge of the case to explain the curious bit of intelligence given by the last witness. Fourneau, not one whit disturbed in manner, rose to give his evidence of the incident. Oddly enough, his eyes dwelt all the time, with the dull deadness of expression in them, upon the lowered face of winter. It was true, he told the court, that he had called upon Mr. Osborne that evening. It was true that he was asked to wait, and he seemed to remember now that he had wandered through a doorway into a room full of curios to have a look at them in those idle moments. "'So you knew Mr. Osborne before the murder?' inquired the court. "'Yes, I knew him very well by sight and repute, as a man about town, though not to speak to.' "'And what was the nature of the business on which you called to see him?' "'It was a purely personal matter.' The coroner paused, with the air of a man who suddenly discovers a morass, where he imagined there was a clear road. "'And did you see Mr. Osborne that evening?' he asked at length. "'No, sir. After I had waited some time, the valet entered and told me that Mr. Osborne had just telephoned to say that he would not be home before dinner.' So I came away. Have you spoken to Mr. Osborne since then about the matter on which you called to see him that evening? No, sir. Why not? Because after that evening there was no longer any need. Well, to the more experienced officials in court this explanation had an unusual sound, but to Winter, who slowly but surely was gathering the threads of the murder in the flat into his hands, it sounded like a sentence of death and to Clark, too, who had in his possession Rose de Bercy's diary taken from Pauline Dessault. It sounded so amazing that he could scarcely believe his ears. However, the coroner nodded to Fourneau, and Fourneau turned to Osborne's solicitor, who suddenly resolved to ask no questions, so the dapper little man seated himself again at the table, much to the relief of the jury, who were impatient of any red herring drawn across the trail of evidence that led unmistakably to the millionaire. Then, at last, appeared six witnesses who spoke no longer against but for Osborne. Four were international polo players, and two were waiters at the Ritz Hotel, and all were positive that at the hour when Mrs. Bates saw her employer at home, they saw him elsewhere or some among them saw him, and the others, without seeing him, knew that he was elsewhere. Against this unassailable testimony was the obviously honest cabman, and Osborne's own housekeeper, and the jury, level-headed men, fully inclined to be just, though perhaps in this instance passionate and prejudiced, weighed it in their hearts. But Fourneau, to suit his own purposes, had contrived that the tag of lace should come last and with its mute appeal for vengeance everything in favour of Osborne was swept out of the bosom of His Majesty's lieges, and only wrath and abhorrence raged there. Why, if he had actually killed Rose de Bercy, Osborne should carry about that incriminating piece of lace in his bag, no one seemed to stop to ask. But when the dreadful thing was held up before his eyes, the twelve good men and true looked at it and at each other and a sort of shuddering abhorrence pervaded the court. 
Even the Italian Antonio, who had contrived to be present as representing some obscure paper in Paris, the very man who had put the lace into the bag, shook his head over Osborne's guilt, being, as it were, carried out of himself by the vigour and rush of the mental hurricane which swept around him. When Osborne, put into the box, repeated that the Celt was really his, this candour now won no sympathy. When he said solemnly that the bit of lace had been secreted among his belongings by some unknown hand, the small company of men present in court despised him for so childish a lie. His spirit, as he stood in that box, exposed to the animus of so many spirits, felt as if it was being hurried by a kind of magnetic gale to destruction. His fingers, his knees, shivered. His voice cracked in his throat. He could not keep his eyes from being wild, his skin from being white. And in his heart his own stupefied conscience accused him of the sin that his brothers charged him with. Though the jury soon ascertained from the coroner's injunctions what their verdict had to be, they still took twenty minutes to think of it. However, they knew well that the coroner had spoken to them under the suggestion of the police, who, no doubt, would conduct their own business best. So in the end they came in with the verdict of willful murder committed by some person or persons unknown. And now it was the turn of the mob to have their say. The vast crowd was kept in leash until they were vouchsafed just a glimpse of Osborne, in the midst of a mass of police guarding him, as he emerged from the court to his automobile. Then suddenly, as it were, the hoarse bellow of the storm opened to roar him out of the universe, an overpowering load of sound for one frail heart to bear without quailing. But if Osborne's heart quailed, there was one heart there that did not quail, one smooth forehead that suddenly flushed and frowned in opposition to a world's current, and dared to think and feel alone. As the mob yelped its execration, Rosalind Marsh cried a protest of, "'Shame! Oh, shame!' For now her woman's bosom smote her with truth, and her compassion championed him, believed in him, refused to admit that he could have been so base. If she had been near him she would have raised her veil and gazed into his face with a steady smile. As she was about to enter the carriage that awaited her, someone said close behind her, "'Miss Marsh!' She looked round and saw a small man. "'You know me,' he said. Inspector Fourneau, we have even met and spoken together before. You remember the old man who travelled with you in the train from Tormouth? That was myself in another aspect. His eyes smiled, though his voice was respectful, but Rosalind gave him the barest inch of condescension in a nod. Now I wish to speak to you, he muttered hurriedly. I cannot say when exactly, I am very occupied just now, but soon to speak to you, I think, in your own interests, if I may, but I do not know your address. Very coldly, hardly caring to try and understand his motive, she mentioned the house in Porchester Gardens. In another moment she was in her carriage. When she reached home, she saw in her mother's face just a shadow of inquiry as to where she had been driving during the forenoon. But Rosalind said not a word of the inquest. She was indeed very silent during the whole of that day and the next. She was restless and woefully uneasy. Through the night 
her head was full of strange thoughts, and she slept but little, in fitful moments of weariness. Her mother observed her with a quiet eye, pondering this unwanted distress in her heart, but said nothing. On the third morning Rosalind was sitting in a rocking-chair, her head laid on the back, her eyes closed, and with a motion corresponding with the gentle to-and-fro of the chair, her head moved wearily from side to side. This went on for some time, till suddenly she brought her hand to her forehead in a rather excited gesture. Her eyes opened with the weak look of eyes dazzled with light, and she said aloud, "'Oh, I must!' Now she sprang up in a hurry, hastened to an escritoire, and dashed off a letter in a very scamper of haste. At last, then, the floods had broken their gates, for this is what she wrote. "'My dear, my dear, I was brutal to you that night at the sundial. But it was necessary, if I was to maintain the severity which I felt that your lack of frankness to me deserved. Inwardly there was a terribly weak spot, of which I was afraid, and if you had come after me when I left you, and had commanded me, or prayed me, or touched me, no doubt it would have been all up with me. Forgive me, then, if I seemed over-harsh where, I'm afraid, I am disposed to be rather too infinitely lenient. At present, you see, I quite lack the self-restraint to keep from telling you that I am sorry for you. I was present at the inquest. Pity is like lightning. It fills, it burns up, it enlightens. See me here struck with it. You are not without a friend, one who knows you, judges you, and acquits you. If you want to come to me, come. I once thought well of a Mr. Glynn, but, like a flirt, will forget him, if Osborne is of the same manner, speaks with the same voice. My mother is usually good to me. She enclosed it in a flurry of excitement, ran to the bell-rope, rang, and while waiting for a servant, held the envelope in the manner of one who is on the very point of tearing a paper in two, but halts to see on which cheek the wind will hit. In the midst of this suspense of indecision the door opened, and now straightway she hastened to it and got rid of the letter, saying rapidly in a dropped voice, confidentially, "'Pauline, put that in the pillar-box at once for me, will you?' Another moment, and she stood alone there, with a shocked and beating heart, the deed done, past recall now. As for Pauline Dessous, she was halfway down the stairs when she chanced to look at the envelope. Rupert Osborne, Esquire. She started. Everything connected with that name was of infinite interest to her. But she had not dreamt that Miss Marsh knew it, save as everyone else knew it, from public gossip and the papers. She had never seen Rosalind Marsh, or her mother, till the day of their arrival from the country. It was but ten days earlier that she had become the servant of a Mrs. Prawser, a friend of Mrs. Marsh's, who kept a private boarding-house, being in reduced circumstances. Then, after but an interval of peace and security, the Marshes had come, and as she let them in, and they were being embraced by Mrs. Prawser, Inspector Clark had appeared at the door, nearly striking her dead with agitation, and demanding of her the diary which she had handed him. Luckily, luckily, she had been wise enough before that to scratch out with many thick scratches of the pen the name that had been written by the actress before the initials C.E.F., in that passage where the words appeared, If I am killed this night it will be by... 
or by C. E. F. But suppose she had not shown such sense and daring, what then? She shivered at the thought. And a new problem now tortured her. Was it somehow owing to the fact that Miss Marsh knew Osborne, that Inspector Clark had come upon her at the moment of the two ladies' arrival? What was the relation between Miss Marsh and Osborne? What was in this letter? It might be well to see. Undecided, Pauline stood on the stairs some seconds, letter in hand, all the high colour fled from lips and cheeks, her breast rising and falling, no mere housemaid now, but a figure of anguish fit for an artist to sketch there in her suspense, a well-moulded girl of perfect curves and graceful poise. Then it struck her that Miss Marsh might be looking out of the window to watch her hurrying with the letter to the pillar-box, a little way down the street and at this thought she ran downstairs and out, hurried to the pillar-box, raised her arm with the letter, inserted it in the slot, drew it out swiftly and hiddenly again, slipped it into her pocket, and sped back to the house. In her rooms half an hour later she steamed the envelope open, and read the avowal of another woman's passion and sympathy. It appeared, then, that Miss Marsh was now in love with Osborne? Well, that did not specially interest or concern her, Pauline. It was a good thing that Osborne had so forgotten cette salope, Rose de Bercy. She, Pauline, had conceived a fondness for Miss Marsh. She had detested her mistress, the dead actress. At the first chance she crept afresh into the street and posted the letter in grim earnest. But an hour had been lost, an hour that meant a great deal in the workings of this tragedy of real life and, as a minor happening, some of the gum was dissolved off the flap of the envelope. Inspector Fourneau, as he had promised after the inquest, called upon Rosalind during the afternoon. They had an interview of some length in Mrs. Prosser's drawing-room, which was otherwise untenanted. Fourneau spoke of the picturesqueness of Tormouth, but Rosalind's downright questioning forced him to speak of himself in the part of the decrepit Mr. Pugh, and why he had been there as such. He had gone to have a look at Osborne. "'In his every step, then, spied on in this fashion?' asked Rosalind. "'No,' answered Fourneau. "'The truth is that I had had reason to think that the man was again playing the lover in that quarter.' "'Ah, playing,' said Rosalind, with quick sarcasm. "'It is an insipid phrase for so serious an occupation.' but what reason had you for thinking that he was playing in that particular mood? The reason is immaterial. In fact, he had impressed on the back of a letter a name. I may tell you it was Rosalind, and sent it off inadvertently. Oh, poor fellow! Not so skilled a villain, then, after all, she murmured. But the point was that, if this was so, it was clear to me that he could not be much good. I speak frankly. Very, sir and with a good meaning to you. Let us take it at that. It makes matters easier. Well, as I suspected, so I found. And I was disgusted. I give you my assurance that he had professed to Mademoiselle de Bercy that he loved her. He had, he had. And she, so pitifully handled, so butchered, was hardly yet cold in her grave. Even assuming his perfect innocence in that horrible drama, Still, I must confess, I, I was disgusted. I was put against the man forever. 
and I was more than disgusted with him, I was concerned for the lady whose inclinations such a weather-vane might win. I was concerned before I saw you, I was ten times more concerned afterwards. I travelled to town in the same compartment as you, I heard your voice, I enjoyed the privilege of breathing the same air as you and your charming mother. Hence I am here." Rosalind smiled. She found the detective's compliments almost nauseating, but she must ascertain his object. "'Why, precisely?' she asked. "'I want to warn you. I had warned you before, for I had given a certain girl, whose love Mr. Osborne had inspired, a hint of what was going on, and I felt sure that she would not fail to tell you who Mr. Glynn was. Was I not right?' Rosalind bent her head a little under this unexpected thrust. "'I received a note,' she said. "'Who, then, is this certain girl, whose love Mr. Osborne has inspired, if one may ask? I may tell you, in confidence. Her name is Prout. She is his secretary.' "'He is successful in that way,' observed Rosalind coldly, looking down at a spray of flowers pinned to her breast. "'Too much so, Miss Marsh.' Now I felt confident that the warning given by Miss Prout would effectually quash any friendship between a lady of your pride and quality and Mr. Glynn, Osborne. But then, through your thick veil, I noticed you at the inquest, and I said to myself, I am older than she is, I'll speak to her in the tone of an old and experienced man, if she will let me. You see, I let you. I even thank you but then you notice that Mr. Osborne is just now vilified and friendless. Oh, there is his Miss Prout. Rosalind's neck stiffened a little. That is indefinite, she said. I know nothing of this lady, except that, as you tell me, she is ready to betray her employer to serve her own ends. Mr. Osborne is my friend. It is my duty to refuse to credit vague statements made against him. It is not possible. It cannot be. She stopped, rather in confusion. Fourneau believed he could guess what she meant to say. "'It is possible, believe me,' he broke in earnestly, since it was possible, as you know, for him to turn his mind so easily from the dead. It is also possible—' "'Oh, the dead deceived him!' she protested with a lively flush. "'The dead was unworthy of him. He never loved her.' "'He deceived her!' cried Fourneau also in an unaccountable heat. He deceived her. No doubt she was as fully worthy of him as he of her. It was a pair of them, and he loved her as much as he can love any one. Women are said to be the best judges in such matters, Inspector Fourneau. So, then, you will not be guided by me in this, Fourneau said, standing up. No. Nevertheless, I thank you for your apparent good intent, answered Rosalind. He was silent a little while, looking down at her. On her part she did not move, and kept her eyes studiously averted. Then, for your sake, and to spite him, I accuse him to you of the murder, he almost hissed. She smiled. That is very wrong of you, very unlike an officer of the law. You know that he is quite innocent of it. Great indeed is your faith, came the taunt. Well, then he added suddenly, again for your sake, and again to spite him, I will even let you into a police secret. Hear it, listen to it. Yesterday, with a search warrant, I raided Mr. Osborne's private apartments. 
and this is what I found, at the bottom of a trunk, a suit of clothes, the very clothes which the driver of the taxicab described as those of the man whom he took from Berkeley Street to Feldisham Mansions on the night of the murder, and those clothes, now in the possession of the police, are all speckled and spotted with blood. Come, Miss Marsh, what do you say now? Is your trust weakened? Furneaux's eyes sparkled with a glint of real hatred of Osborne, but Rosalind saw nothing of that. She rose, took an unsteady step or two, and stared through the window out into the street. Then she heard the door of the room being opened. She turned at once. Before a word could escape her lips, Furneaux was gone. One minute later she was scribbling with furious speed. "'Do not read my letter. I will call for it, unopened, in person.' Rosalind Marsh. She tugged at the bell-rope. When Pauline appeared, she whispered, "'Quickly, Pauline, for my sake, this telegram.' And as Pauline ran with it, she sank into a chair, and sat there with closed eyelids and trembling lips, sorely stricken in her pride, yet even more sorely in her heart. Now, if her letter had gone by the post by which she had sent it, Osborne would have read it two hours or more before the telegram arrived but it had been kept back by Pauline, and, as it was, the letter only arrived five minutes before the telegram. At that moment Osborne was upstairs in his house. The letter was handed to Hilda Prout in the library. She looked at it, and knew the writing, for she had found in Osborne's room at Tormouth a note of invitation to luncheon from Rosalind to Osborne, and did not scruple to steal it. A flood of jealousy now stabbed her heart and inflamed her eyes. It was then near five in the afternoon, and she had on a silver tripod a kettle simmering for tea, for she was a woman of fads, and held that the servants of the establishment brewed poison. She quickly steamed open the letter, which had been already steamed open by Pauline, and, every second expecting Osborne to enter, ran her eye through it. Then she pressed down the flap of the envelope anew. Two minutes afterwards Rupert made his appearance, and she handed him the letter. He started. He stared at it, his face at once instant pale, at the next crimson. And as he so stood, flurried, glad, agitated, there entered Jenkins with a telegram on a salver. "'What is it?' muttered Osborne, with a gesture of irritation, for he was not quite master of himself in these days. Nevertheless, to get the telegram off his mind at once before rushing upstairs to read the letter in solitude, he snatched at it, tore it open, and ran his eye over it. "'Do not read my letter. I will call for it unopened.' He let his two hands drop in a palsy of anger, the letter in one, the telegram in the other, bitter disappointment in his heart, a wild longing, a mad temptation. He lifted the letter to allow his gaze to linger futilely upon it, like Tantalus. In spite of his agitation, he could not fail to see that the envelope was actually open, for, as a matter of fact, the gum had nearly all been steamed away. It was open. He had but to put his finger and draw it out, and read and revel, like the parched traveller at the solitary well in the desert. Would that be dishonest? Who could blame him for that? He had not opened the envelope. "'Miss Prout, just give me the gum-pot,' he said, for he could see that the gum on the flap was too thin to be of any service. Hilda Prout handed him a brush, and he pasted down the flap, 
but with fingers so agitated that he made daubs with the gum on the envelope, daubs which anyone must notice on examination. Meantime, he had dropped the telegram upon the table, and Hilda Prout read it. End of chapter 9